This weekend, I left the home I've lived in for the past nearly four years, one that welcomed a new dog and a new baby into our family, and moved into a house that is ours, and one that will welcome all kinds of new and different life into our family. I feel so deep into this loss so that you might have life business that I'm not sure that I can totally process it just yet. That's just to say that this imperative to lose your life so that it might be saved is a principle inherent to our world. Death begets new life. Whenever we grasp something too tightly, we know in that moment that we've actually lost it. You know like those um, tubular gel toys that as soon as you grab tightly slips out of your fingers? Unlike that toy, in real life, we don't always know whether we are grasping something too tightly or trying to save something in order to avoid pain or death or what might come next. But Jesus calls us to know this and to lose our lives not for our own sake, but for the sake of the gospel. So this morning we're going to look closer at this passage, specifically the rebuke of Peter and the rebuke of Jesus. Let's feel with Peter and listen to Jesus so that we might know what it's like to hold too tightly to things of our own and for our own sake. If you're following along at home today, you can open a Bible and follow along with me. Or, because I know you're on a screen, look for an online Bible. The passage we're given today in the lectionary starts in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. But well, because this passage starts with the word then, we're going to go back to the previous verses to understand where we are in Mark's story. Let's just go back as far as verse 27, where it says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Now, if we had read all seven and a half chapters of Mark leading up to this passage, we would know that up until now, Jesus had been working miracles, teaching disciples and crowds of people, calming storms, walking on water, that kind of stuff. By most standards, he was acting very extra human, to say the least. We see in uh, chapter 8, verse 11, where the Pharisees seem to at least have some clue about this and question Jesus' messiahship. But meanwhile, the disciples seem to be utterly confused about the nature of their new friend. You can look to chapters 8, 17 to 21, where even at a glance, you can see on the page that Jesus seems frustrated with their lack of understanding, asking them a series of pretty harsh questions, ending with, do you not yet understand? So when finally Jesus asks his disciples, point blank, who they think he is, and Peter jumps in with, you are the Messiah. You can imagine Jesus' exhilarating relief. We then get to our passage this morning, which starts with then, meaning because of all that, or as a result, 
he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, etc. He will die and will rise again in three days. Well, shoot. Jesus finally gets his disciples to understand who he really is. You are the Messiah, Jesus, or Peter says. But at this understanding, Jesus quickly and with great calculation pivots. Perhaps he was waiting for them to understand so that he could make this pivot. Or perhaps their understanding initiated this turn. Either way, he reveals to them what this title means. They will have to let him go. Interestingly, this revelation happens twice more in Mark with exactly the same results. That is, the disciples just don't get it. But the first time it happens in our passage this morning, I think is the most interesting, in part because Peter is always so easy to relate to, but also because of the reaction it gets out of Jesus. So, after Jesus tells his disciples this news, Peter loses his cool and rebukes Jesus for saying this terrible thing. I mean, this, this is shocking news for Peter, uh, and his reaction seems about right to me. Peter literally just figured it out. He's put two and two together, and he figured out that Jesus is the one he's been waiting for, the triumphant one who will save them all. He just finally gets his fingers around it and so cannot believe what Jesus is saying. Jesus cannot die now. That's the very opposite of what the one who saves would do. But then Jesus shocks Peter, and likely all the disciples nearby, and ups the ante with this response, Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Uh, it's a little harsh, but we see a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus here. The only other time we see Jesus talk directly to Satan in Mark is in Mark 1.12, when this adversary comes in the form of an embodied spirit and tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Other gospel accounts of this encounter give us a little more of the story than Mark does, telling us that Satan showed Jesus what kind of power he could have if only he demonstrates his might before this adversary. It's the very kind of thing that Jesus, the man, might desire. So we learn a lot about the character of Jesus in this particular part of the story. Jesus is human and is tempted by the easy way out. But Jesus rejects this temptation. Why does he resist this temptation? In short, because he knows that he's called to something beyond this easy answer. He understands the will of God, which is, in this moment, to deny himself, to pull himself from the center of his own considerations, and specifically in this moment, to resist the temptation to react to the violence that will be done to him. His resistance to fighting back, however, is not about being passive in the face of violence done to him, but about breaking the cycle of violence, about redefining what it means to live a life and what it means to be successful in that living. The scandal of Jesus is that he would submit himself to this violence without a fight in return or retaliation. He would deny his own title and instead show that vulnerability is the victor. 
And Jesus, I think knowing his audience, rightly goes into further detail on this point. If any wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This part of the passage is interesting, again, because Peter is involved. And what we know about Peter is that he will actually verbally deny being associated with Jesus later in Mark. Knowing this, it, it is hard not to hear Jesus being very direct and literal with Peter on this point. But, of course, assuming that Jesus was only talking to Peter would be the easy way out of this passage. Because Jesus doesn't direct these words only to Peter. The writer of Mark tells us that Jesus called, likely most embarrassingly for Peter, the crowd with his disciples to explain what just happened. It's rough having your faults become an object lesson. So now we're all in this. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who, want to, those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Peter rebuked Jesus because what Jesus said, in the words of the Reverend Stephanie Spellers, disrupted his ideas of how things should be. He could not allow for Jesus to be anything other than his own ideas of a Messiah. And for that, for holding on too tight to the life he knew, Peter is rebuked by Jesus. But Jesus will not be deterred from denying himself so that his life could offer salvation to another. So what does it feel like to grip our own lives too tightly? How will we know when we're doing it? And how will we know when we have lost our lives for the sake of the gospel? What does that even mean? The commentary in my HarperCollins Study Bible suggests the term gospel means glad tidings of salvation. Another way I've heard that translated recently is for the flourishing of all people. Honestly, as a white person, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about the meaning of gospel in this way are reparations. But also, I think of how I give of my time. I said goodbye to my elderly neighbor yesterday, Margie, who I've spent a lot of time with over these past four years. And so has anyone who's been to my house, likely. I told her I'd come visit because I still have an errand to do in the neighborhood twice a week. And because, in her words, I'm the only one she's friendly with, which is extremely true. But what raced through my mind as I made this promise to come visit her was the reality of what a morning is like for me and what it would actually take to stop and give Margie some time on my way to work. It would mean that I would have to carve out the time, because that time is already spoken for in 10 other ways. It will disrupt my morning. But does it give life to another? Does it work toward the flourishing of Margie? It does, and it does. Discipleship is disruptive. It will cost us from our lives. 
But in the case that we think this disruptive discipleship is the end goal or the end of the story, Jesus, even in this moment with his disciples, tells them that it is not. He will die, yes, but he says he will rise again. This is incomprehensible and defies all of our logic. But it's right there in the midst of the disruptive call, and it's compelling. Because we're all hoping that we save our lives and save ourselves and find our truest life. But Jesus lays it out clearly. Being unaware and afraid of disruption to what is and what we know is a way to ensure that we will lose ourselves. Risk disruption. When that urge comes to rebuke Jesus, to rebuke the disruption to your day or to your very core, choose the way forward that works for the flourishing of all. And Jesus says, you will find your life. 